Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Welcome, everybody, to the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta. And today we have a, a special guest, David White, who is the principal of Ontos Global which and a cognitive anthropologist. Ontos uh, is a boutique consulting firm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Dave is also the author of Rethinking Culture, uh, embodying the and the origin of culture and organization in organizations uh you can correct me david but uh there's an interesting backstory to this uh david and i actually knew each other way way back when in the new york area where we were we both happened to be jazz musicians and uh through the miracles of social media uh dave reconnected with me just recently and actually shared a shared a tape of of some of the music we played together dave is is a uh you know fabulously accomplished jazz guitarist and composer who has a number of cds to his credit uh he's played in a grammy nominated band uh, among other things we're not going to talk about that in this in this podcast but it was uh really a wonderful way to reconnect david it's it's really it's great to great to have you on the podcast Thanks for having me, Ed, and it's great to reconnect and relive uh, some of those crazy <laughs> memories from New York City. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. I, I think we, we uh, yeah, the recording you shared was on a, a hot summer day where we all got together and essentially just improvised without any, uh, you know, any, any, any preconceived material and it was uh it was it has a lot of parallels with what we end up doing in our our daily lives in many, in many different ways but in more ways than in more ways than one too we should also point out for your audience ed that uh, you are also a very fabulously accomplished multi-instrumentalist <laughs> that day that day you were playing bass and uh, uh it was it was uh it was a great memory yeah have. Uh, it is. It, it was, and and in the interim, uh, I think both of us have, have taken some really, uh, really different career paths that have that have led us up to uh, doing work in uh, actually in some you know very I would say uh, common areas. We have some you know some common companies that we work with, and and I, I thought it was really fascinating. And uh, and and having you join the podcast. I think this is, will add some real dimension to a human dimension to a lot of the topics that we've been covering in some of the prior co podcasts, which have really focused a lot on on technology disruption and you know, some of the impact on, on on organizations. But I think um, what's what's really fascinating is is you know, just some of the work that that you've done since you uh, since we initially initially met as a musician. Uh, so, David. Could, could, Share a bit of your background. I mean, what what got you into uh, really the, the the study of of organizations and and ultimately led you to to cognitive anthropology? Yeah, thanks. Well, like I think like for many of us, the it's a long and winding road, right? Uh, it's a circuitous route. Uh, I would never have predicted that day that we were when we were playing in New York City 
uh, in the 1980s that uh, we would be having this conversation, you know, 25 years later, <laughs> 30 years later. Um, my uh, my journey is, like I said, it's uh, quite roundabout. Um, I actually have maintained a career in jazz, as you mentioned, but also early on decided that uh, rather than sort of being a bartender or a restaurant uh, waiter in a restaurant for the rest of my life to support myself, because of course, there is no money in jazz whatsoever. Um, I got into, through a series of events over many years, um, found myself um, getting into and interested in HR, human resources, and uh, started out my career as an executive recruiter on Wall Street, and that led to uh, eventually moving in-house and becoming uh, uh, doing HR for a investment banking technology startup, which then uh, led me eventually to uh, Lotus Development, the original uh, inventor of the spreadsheet up in the Boston area, which led me to eventually to IBM because Lotus was acquired by IBM and uh, uh, many years later started my own technology company in the HR space uh, that was acquired by a large consulting firm and then I wound up at Microsoft where I spent a number of years uh, doing HR, organizational development, culture change, uh, large-scale change, essentially. So it's been a, an evolution from uh, with a common thread, really, of trying to figure out why organizations do what they do uh, internally and why sort of the best-laid strategies and the best and brightest minds um, inevitably uh, don't always achieve what they intend because of um, these impinging internal organizational factors like culture, like people, <laughs> like... Uh, the system dynamics, the human dynamics of people in organizations. So I've just, since really the early 1990s, I've been fascinated by those by those questions. And so you uh, you you pursued a PhD in, uh, in in cultural anthropology. Well, much much later. I mean, uh, after yeah, I mean cultural or cognitive, right? Yeah, cognitive anthropology. Yeah, after twenty some twenty five twenty some odd years of sort of. Working kind of in this space, uh, I was always interested in the the more formal uh, intellectual, uh, you know, questions and literature on this topic. But finally decided to pursue a PhD in the uh, in the late 1990s, early early 2000s, and um, yeah, cognitive anthropology, which is really the the study of the relationship between the brain and culture. And cognitive anthropology has. Uh, had a it's it's a relatively new discipline. It's actually a subdiscipline of uh, this the mix of psychology and anthropology, um, with an emphasis on on the brain and um, and it's had a there's been an explosion in in research and literature and and um, practitioners in this field in uh, uh, researchers in this field in in really the last thirty years. It's a very young field. So how, how did you really? Make the evolution from you know working inside organizations to uh, to taking this this really this deeper dive into the you know the, the cognitive aspect of, of anthropology. Were there were there some experiences that um, that had really sh- helped shape your views or or really point you uh, in a direction to to dive deeper? Uh, yeah, I, I would say um, it's, it's not really any one specific experience. Just the cumulative um, effect of being inside organizations and seeing how they work and they don't work. Um, uh, I think probably the most formative of those kinds of experiences was my Microsoft experience. I was almost almost 10 years at Microsoft or uh, nine, nine plus. Um, and, you know, Microsoft uh, had a very, has a very 
palpable culture. And yet uh, that all, everybody sort of can recognize and describe in some ways, but yet it was very difficult to actually measure that culture or quantify it in any way or um, sort of make sense of it in any uh, kind of empirical way. But it, yet it was something that you and I um, both sort of could agree on. And I'd never, I'd never been inside an organization that had such a, st a strong way of, of doing things. And there were clearly... Um, when you were in that system, you clearly um, saw or could see people who sort of quote unquote fit and those who didn't fit. And you could evidence that in the rates of, at which, you know, um, senior executives would be hired and then leave the company fairly quickly because they just they couldn't quote unquote fit in. So, I, I you know, I had been fascinated by the culture question for long before I joined Microsoft, um, which was in the early 2000s. But when I got to Microsoft, a lot of these ideas about culture really um, came to the fore because of my um, because of the experience I was having. I, I'd never been inside an organization where the, the this this thing called culture, this nebulous thing called culture was so palpable. Um, and that that got me really interested in uh, in in how to how to deal with it, how to understand it, how to measure it. Also, I should point out we were doing a lot of work in um, sort of culture change, trying to quote unquote change the Microsoft culture. Uh, for a lot of reasons, which we, we can get into, but uh, and most of those approaches, to my mind, were quite inadequate. Were kind of woefully inadequate. I have to say, I was part of that change effort, but I was also deeply skeptical that what we were actually doing was going to move the needle in any way. So that the combination of sort of being in a system that felt really where the culture was so strong, and also realizing that the culture change um, mechanisms that we were employing were really kind of um, Subpar, not subpar, just naive, just behind the times. And in, in my in my view, um, got me interested in going deeper and pursuing kind of an academic or intellectual um, understanding of this question. So, I, and and I know you've written qu you know quite a bit on this, uh, and uh, you, there's a uh, quite a quite a fascinating paper on uh, on your website called Disrupting Culture, which will we'll link to in the show notes but one of the one of the points you make is that uh you know culture is uh you know a, a term that's probably one of the most overused and least understood in society uh and as that ties back to organizations i, I you cited a study that showed that 76% of uh, a of firms in a survey had planned some sort of culture change and uh i i, I think it's worthwhile stepping back a bit and, and just defining, you know, what what culture is. I mean, how, what, you know, how, how do you look at culture and what do you think some of the misperceptions are around, you know, around the definition of, of culture as, as, it, as it applies to an organization? Yeah, it's 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 really remarkable. I mean, the the culture field is is um, littered with um, carcasses of failed, you know, of of uh, failed inter interventions, um, and yet it's you know it it persists as the most one of the most popular, um, you know, every executive that I know of on the planet talks about their culture, and and uh, it, yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of reasons for that. One one reason is that the science of culture is still relatively young, um, despite the fact that uh, Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict in the 1920s were writing about primitive society cultures in the study of you know Samoa and other so-called primitive societies, uh, most of what we know about, most of the exciting, groundbreaking work on cultures really happened in the last 30 years, I, as I mentioned, in the cognitive 
because of the cognitive sciences. Um, so uh, the the main what what has happened or what has shifted is that um, much of the business world treats culture as a as a dependent variable, um, that something that you can kind of manipulate like any other asset, um, and and. Well, that's very an understandable position to take because, you know, most executives are not concerned about culture. They just see culture as a means to an end. They're trying to achieve better financial performance or achieve some kind of organizational transformation of some kind for, for good business reasons. And culture is just another variable in the mix of variables that you can manipulate. And some of that thinking is traceable back to the very, very early days of anthropology. Um, where cultures were thought of as kind of, you know, simplistic uh, entities with well-definable boundaries. And you could say, you know, this this culture, that culture, you could sort of easily point out um, discernible cultures in, in you know, so-called primitive societies. Um, some of it also has to do, however, with the fact that a lot of the study of culture in organizations and a lot of the study of culture in business schools actually comes from economists. Um, or, or management science uh, management scientists who are really not um, who have really been sort of separate from the from the cult, the, the traditions the research traditions in cultural anthropology and psychological anthropology and cognitive anthropology. So there really is kind of a there's really kind of a, a gap between what the business schools talk about when they talk about culture and what the anthropologists and the linguists and the um, neuroscientists and sort of the other social the, the other sort of folks talk about in the academic world separate from the business world. There's really a, a divide. Um, so the combination of business pragmatism, um, outmoded theories of culture that have been leveraged, uh, you know, that are over 100 years old, and the fact that, uh, you know, the, the people who do organizational research aren't really talking to the people who do social science research in the broader sense um, has contributed to this to this gap in understanding. Right. And I, I think what's what seems to be a, a challenge in, and what what's what's come up in uh, certainly in our conversations is, is that the you know, the the ability to you know, change behaviors in an organization once you go past the you know the famous Dunbar's number of 150 people gets much uh, much greater. So, I mean, has has a lot of the I mean, historically has has the studies of organizational culture been uh, been driven uh, really just as a, a a means to scale a business and and create replica replicable behavior? You know, how 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 have people thought about uh, about culture in the and the past and and are, are there some new elements that have uh to to the analysis that have that have in in the interim or or since then um become much more important in uh in, in determining how to drive change yeah i mean in my view culture culture has been the culture practice uh, in organizations has really been sort of a wild wild west kind of uh, kind of approach culture is operationalized in in many, many different ways. In all fairness, you know, the, you know, uh, there have been over there are hundreds, 150 different definitions of culture over the last 50 years in in anthropology. So it is a very slippery topic, um, and that, that is part of the problem. Um, but again, the relentless pragmatism of, of business um, has contributed to this by wanting by sort of um, taking on very simplistic, one-dimensional answers or approaches or solutions to culture 
Um, you have to understand the, the whole interest in culture is relatively new in organizations. It really came out of the 1970s um, where the shift, um, and this has to do, a lot to do with theory X, theory Y ideas, where, where the shift in the 70s was from thinking of organizations as um, thinking of people in organizations and motivation as essentially about, um, you know, people are inherently uh, uninterested, un lazy, uh, unmotivated to do their work, and therefore the the way to manage and develop and manage people is really through coercive means, um, uh, direct control, uh, coercion, and the, the 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 research in the 1970s moved that discussion to thinking about organizations um, much more as uh, normative environments where where people where the best way to manage and motivate people is to harness their um, their energy and their motivation and their and their interest in um, in the work or in the organizational well-being itself and and harness that to to uh, you know for good use and so the the executive emphasis shifted from more direct means of control or control of the workforce or control of the worker to normative means and so the culture organizational culture interest in business comes out of this normative shift in the 1970s where suddenly it's not fashionable to be um, you know directly commanding and controlling your organization but it's more fashionable to be thinking of indirect means such as rewards such as recognition such as um, uh, better understanding of what motivates people the the uh, the emphasis on uh, on diversity stems out of this the emphasis on sort of teams stems out of this um, and so culture is just another another aspect of this, that the idea is that if we could sort of create the environment where people could do their best work, um, that would be a much better way to go than simply, you know, um, managing, you know, telling people what to do and controlling people in a directly, directly manipulative way. Um, so, yeah. So one of the the points you made in uh, you know in, in your in your writing was that uh, you you. Know, Change creating change in an organization is very much dependent on what the organization does. That I mean, if you're a software company or or you're um, you know you're trying to go through a business transformation from essentially selling uh, selling widgets to selling uh, to selling software, you know these are um, there. There's a very a fundamental uh, you know foundational change at work that has a pretty direct outsized impact on on the on the ability of a of a company to sort of change how people are doing things so to, to talk about some of the some of the misalignments how how companies may may look at a uh, a transformation such as you know moving from selling products to selling services and or or trying to apply a methodology say from the the pri pri from the private sector to uh, you know to a non nonprofit organization how do, how do those uh, misalignments or or misperceptions end up uh, you know creating problems for organizations that you in, in that you've seen yeah good, good question so so let's back up and to answer that question, understand uh, what I was saying earlier about the, the cognitive revolution in, in the social sciences, uh, and particularly in anthropology. So the the new the new science um, that used you know the, the new work in cognitive in the cognitive sciences, which is in linguistic psychology, neuro 
cultural neuroscience, anthropology, etc., really is, has established that the brain is essentially plastic. What that means is the brain is deeply influenced by its experience. And that's not just to say we learn from experience. It's, that's a that's way more way more than that. The the brain is actually neurologically chemically shaped by the environments in which the organism finds itself. Um, so think about that just for a second. You know the the environment that surrounds you throughout your life, uh, in your childhood and as you grow up, um, actually patterns the way you think in a in a pretty fundamental way, in which we're just learning. The, the cultural take on that, or the, the the cognitive anthropological take on that, is then that, uh, and as applied to organizations, and this is kind of the the core thesis of my book, is that what you do shapes how you think. What does that mean? That means specifically that the uh, your professional orientation, your professional apprenticeships, um, the the professionalization of your organization, meaning uh, software engineers. Uh, lawyers, doctors, uh, uh, any kind of engineer, um, you know, any any deep professional training that has um, that um, that a majority of your workforce has obtained um, will tend to shape the cognitive orientations of those of the of those those people, those individuals. Um, so so professionalization is shapes how you think and the other the other part of uh, this thesis uh, also in my book is that also the working on very meaningful tasks solving very difficult problems um, over time and successfully doing so in a sustained way um, also shapes how you think so so sort of meaningful task attainment if you will to put a kind of technical term on it and professionalization are the two driving forces of how cultures come to be in organizations which is also which is shown and proven again and again in the literature because we know that companies within industries are more culturally alike than companies across industries. Um, we know that um, the nature of the of the work that companies do does shape the collective cognitive orientation. That's why nonprofits have a very distinct way of uh, culturally speaking feel feel quite different than for-profit companies. Um, this is why government institutions or bureaucratic institutions feel quite different than than uh, for-profit companies it's the nature of the of the problem that they're solving all day long shapes indelibly shapes the collective thinking so that's the that is one of the um that's one of the great uh, findings of, of cognitive anthropology over over the years that the the brain in its neuroplasticity is deeply shaped by the environment taking that into organizations what you do all day, uh, the orientations that you bring to your work uh, shape how you think. And that includes technology, that includes uh, the, the the ways, the business models that you create for yourselves, the way you organize your, um, your processes. All of these tend to shape collective neural pathways. Um, and then think about it that way. That means, you know, culture. What is culture? Culture is, is, is shared knowledge. Culture is, is a shared body of knowledge. The tricky part is that culture is is actually shared. Most of that knowledge is tacit or implicit. It's not that we don't know that we know it. Um, and and there's a thousand examples of this. It's it, you know it's everything from sort of what you know what to do when you walk into a restaurant. You know what to expect. There's a there's a there's a sequence or an ordering of events that happens. And when that sequence is disturbed in some way. 
or you walk into a restaurant in you know on a beach uh, in Tahiti that's different than you know a restaurant in New York City something something is jarred in you and what's being jarred is the is the the, the shared tacit knowledge or, or essentially the mental model that you have so culture is kind of shared mental models of how the world works that uh, and the emphasis on shared and the emphasis on tacit because we we typically don't know that we know this knowledge we don't it, it's, it resides in the background. It's it, my the metaphor I use is it's really like an operating system, like a software operating system. You know, when you're running your computer, you're not really aware of the operating system that is powering your apps until something happens, until it breaks or crashes, or um, you have to reload it. You know, th- this is a this is the metaphor that's most applicable to culture. So that's got some really interesting implications, David. I mean, I I think you know what you've described is I mean it it. it it's it, it it makes sense from a you know very very simply when you ex, uh, explain it it I mean it, it seems like that would be uh, you know prima facie obvious but it's but it isn't right because uh, you you could say okay well engineers think like engineers and artists think like artists and uh, doctors think like doctors but when you're dealing with much more uh, complex dynamic roles ac- across complex organizations that's it, it's it, the, 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 those the pers- personality or uh, you know cognitive archetypes I guess they don't they don't Fit in as neatly into uh, you know, strict classifications. So, from a from a standpoint of, of recruiting talent, I mean that's got to be a. Uh, I mean it's it's an enor- that's got to be an enormously powerful realization. But on the other hand, if you're if you're trying to grow a business that is uh, undergoing certain types of changes, or you're trying to you know recruit the right people, you know, for a task. I mean, what are some of the considerations if you're a, if you're an organization and, and looking at, looking at talent and looking at recruiting, um, you know, how do you, uh, how do you bridge, you know, potential gaps in, uh, you know, in, in alignment between, you know, a, a talent, a candidate or, or an employee and some of the, you know, skill sets or, or, Ways of thinking that uh, that you really want to encourage. Yeah, that's a that's a you know that's a complex question because um, one of the traps that organizations fall into is thinking of culture as essentially causal, like the culture um, shapes the behavior. Uh, it's one of the one of the when I what I say one of the four big traps that or myths that cult, that organizations um, uh, traffic in and. Uh, the the tricky part is that again, like an operating system or you know what cognitive anthropologists call a reference system, culture kind of resides in the background. And you know, at any given point in time, you might be using that knowledge to 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 uh, to act in a certain way or behave in a certain way. But at any point in time, you are eligible also to to have you know to to bring in a different cultural model, as we call them, different reference system to shape your behavior. So, with the implication on recruiting to your question. Is um, it obviously has a strong? Uh, there's a strong insinuation that diversity matters a lot in shaping um, co- collective thinking. Is one of the reasons why diverse teams, uh, diverse in every sense of the word, um, over the long term, uh, o- over the short term, actually tend to underperform um, uh, heterogeneous, uh, homogeneous teams. But the more heterogeneous the the, the team or the talent pool is. Over time, with proper 
attention to this to, to these phenomena um, tend to outperform uh, homogeneous teams, and and the reason for that is that you you uh, homogeneous teams, whether it's professionally homogeneous or gender, race, uh, ethnicity, uh, geography, etc., will tend to absorb or take uh, take in the the resident cultural models, the resident re reference system. Um, without question, whereas a so-called outsider uh, in any given system will tend to become more readily aware of that reference system and and and, and call it out um, uh, and therefore make it available for for change. So, in other words, um, you know, you the, the the less alike you are in a particular system, the more chance you have uh, of, of sort of shaping that that cultural system in a in a different way. Let me just go on for a second and say that you, you extend that thinking. Um, this is why um, it's extraordinarily difficult to actually change culture, much more difficult than than most organizations would have it. Uh, and this is because the, you know, the it's like the fish trying to change the water in its own fish tank. How do you how do you do that? It's if culture is more sort of the water you swim in, uh, rather than sort of a, some dependent variable. How do you actually go about? changing culture uh, and 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 the the cognitive anthropological view on this is that you can change culture but um your the range of change is much more delimited you're not you know google is or a, you know a non-profit is not going to turn into google a manufacturing company trying to embrace iot uh, is not going to become a software company overnight uh, the way they have to embrace iot is much has to be much more dictated along the constraints of um, the manufacturing uh, culture that is already resident there. Um, so there's so change is possible, but it's delimited. And once you once organizations kind of embrace that, uh, the 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 opportunities actually ironically open up for them. Uh, and and a lot of um, wasted energy, wasted resources on these big culture change programs probably would get uh, get rethought. Yeah, that. I was just going to say that's 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 a really uh, you know fascinating insight and and kind of cuts to you know my interest here. I think your comment about uh, diverse teams outperforming over the long term. I think most jazz musicians just implicitly understand that uh, that they, that ultimately the 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 more eyes that you have and the more brains on a problem looking at at. Uh, you know, common goals from from different points of view. I think there's 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 absolutely no no doubt there. Um, what are uh, what are some of the tools that uh, I mean? You you brought up the you know the example of a manufacturing company uh, trying to introduce software capabilities or software business models. Uh, I mean, that's that's certainly one example that's very you know very close to the the work we're doing at momenta but um are, are there are there tools that uh that companies can use once they they become aware what uh and you t talk a bit about the role of language how how can you use uh a, are are there ways you can change language to to shape um the, the to shape cultural change yeah, um, I'll take the second one first. It's a really interesting question, Ed, because actually language is one of the um, one of the areas where there's been a lot of a lot of uh, new new thinking. Um, the the sort of historical view on language and culture is that languages and culture were synonymous, and it sort of change the language, you can change the culture. Right? If we just get our executives to talk differently, you know, the culture will change. 
Uh, most cognitive linguists and cognitive anthropologists today will 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 debate that and dispute that. And there's the, the evidence for that is um, again outside of the the world of of uh, businesses is very limited in that. It, what uh, so so the best way to think about this is most of our cultural knowledge is is implicit, as mentioned, and preverbal. Um, think about sort of our our cultural knowledge being kind of schematic, like a like a a crude etch a sketch of of uh, of knowledge, and the details get filled in depending on the context. Um, so language um, has the opportunity. Of course, we we transact all our our world and our certainly our business world in language. So language language can can bring to light uh, these these schematic drawings or schemas or mental models that reside in the background. But the language in and of itself is not capable of changing a culture. And this is a big, a big preconception or misconception in organizations. Language, language can help do a lot of things like establish a vision, uh, set strategy, help us sort of move in a particular direction that's desirable for the organization. But in and of itself, it's not sufficient for changing culture. The key to culture change along the cognitive paradigm is, um, and you as a jazz musician will know this very well, is practice. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? You practice. Um, and what I mean by practice is, in the obvious sense of the word, it's it's repetition. It's sustained effort um, over time. But it's also the, what I mean specifically in with respect to organizations, is the collection of formal and informal ways in which you run your business. And especially run sort of the core of the business. Uh, when I say practice, I mean the way you think about and allocate risk in your organization. Think about the manufacturer again, trying to implement IOT, right? At the core of the manufacturing task environment is, is risk mitigation, right? It's very, you know, the cost of failure in manufacturing is very high, right? So what manufacturer is going to release a product to market in a six-week sprint with bugs? I don't know any, any manufacturer that will do that. So at the core of the manufacturing task environment is a, a, a strong mitigation of risk, as it should be. The software world has a very different orientation to risk, as we know, right? You know, sprints, agile, um, you know, hackathons. These are all ways of actually iterating and failing fast and, and you know, releasing product to market all the time with, with known bugs. So it's a very different mental model and different mindset. So, the, so to successfully sort of bring in a different way of thinking about um, about uh, software, for example, or analytics or data into a into a, uh, a manufacturing company would be to fundamentally reorient the practice of risk or the practice of managing risk. How do you how do you do that? How do you change your risk management or risk mitigation practices? How do you change your budgeting practices? How do you change your your definitions of success? The practices all that surround how companies define what good is. Um, you know, in in the software world. Um, failure is good, right? I mean, you know, sort of not succeeding uh, or, or failing fast is, is a value, right? It's a virtue in organizations. How, so how do you, how do you inculcate um, failure-oriented practices where failure becomes okay into a, a, a an industrial manufacturing organization? So, so the key is practice, um, much more than language much more than uh, executive pronouncements is how do you change your practices? And I say, and I, again, the emphasis is on the, both the informal and, and the formal because the practices will over time change the brain chemistry in the same way that 
practicing a guitar, practicing guitar for 10,000 hours changes the way your brain is wired. Practicing, you know, practicing the bass for 10,000 hours and that, that 10,000 hour um, is a magic threshold. Right. Uh, so, so it, it is, and that's very, you know, that is very difficult for organizations to actually do because the, as we know in, in, in our, in our world of, uh, in our organizational change practice, the, the, the practices that are most vigorously defended by an organization are the ones that are usually uh, the hardest to change and they're closest to its sort of cultural DNA, its cultural reference system. Usually those are around budgeting, allocation of resources, risk mitigation, uh, et cetera. I don't know if this is making sense or not, but it's- it, no, it does. It does. And and one of the questions that I am thinking uh, that that comes to mind is how you decide what's important to measure. I mean, in your in business, well, certainly in uh, in private sector businesses, ultimately the uh, the focus is financial results, whether that be you know, revenue growth or or margins or ultimately earnings and, and share performance for you know for publicly traded firms. But you know how uh, I mean. Given given that you've done uh, you know, quite a quite a fair amount of research in the field on 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 quantifying the some of the impact of, of, of cultural cultural change and and the, the measurement of of, of you know, trying to decide what to measure, you know, how do you how do you tie the uh, is there a way even to tie effective changes in behavior to uh, financial results or financial metrics and that's a, a, a that's a big question but I I'd in, be interested love to hear if whether uh, you've found I mean certainly link with linkages would seem very obvious and that's certainly we've got a, a you know thriving uh, thriving industry of, of business management books that are that are really focused on exactly that you know achieving better financial outcomes but what's what's your view on on how Different organizations should should think about what they measure and the behaviors that they uh, that, that that they can monitor and, and change, and how those can tie to uh, tie ultimately to the to financial results. Yeah, I, I wish I could uh, sit here and tell you that um, you know there is a you know that we, we've we've discovered the holy grail of uh, of linking culture to financial metrics, and you know. Um, we, we figured it all out. Um, I, I would, I would uh, probably, um, well, probably wouldn't be here talking to you if that was if that was the case. <laughs> bottle, bottle it up and and, uh, and and sell it as a service. Yeah, it's uh, you know the. I would say right now it's a bit of a fool's errand, unfortunately, to because the the idea that you can measure, but you can financially measure the output of culture. Um, is predicated on this notion of culture, as, uh, of this four big myths of culture. You know that culture is causal. That you know one company equals one culture. In fact, most big organizations have many, many different cultures within them, different cultural models underneath them. Um, another myth is that leaders shape culture. Uh, that's that's uh, that's that's a myth completely. Leaders um, can allocate resources and set agendas which in turn shape practices which may change culture, but it's not a directly causal linear process. Um, and, you know, culture, pe- people think of culture as synonymous with values or norms or attitudes or language, um, and that is also a, a mistake. That's an attribution error. Uh, values and norms may reflect some aspect of this cultural reference system that runs in the background, 
but it's not the same as it's not it's not synonymous with it. It's just like trying to change the operating system by focusing on one app. Uh, the app is not going to change the operating system necessarily. So there are all these myths, and 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 tied to that is this notion that somehow if we just get the culture right, the financial results will follow, and we can just measure this out in some kind of linear way. I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, that's not the case. Hmm. Yeah, we're, the, we're a long way from being able to do that. What we can say, though, is that there are proxy measures that we could probably use around behavior, around throughput, around um, the you know the ability to embrace uh, new technologies, and these are these are sort of behavioral, observe you know anecdotal, um, soft measures that, combined with a basket of some of the harder, uh, more traditional measures, can be used to sort of paint a a kind of a Rorschach picture or an impressionistic picture of of something to do with with culture change, but we're we're still probably fifty years away from having the technology to to do well, what you're. Saying. Yeah, I, and it was a you, you made a really interesting point about leadership, and I, I think that uh, that cuts to a, a an enormous disconnect, at least in popular perception of of the impact of of what a leader can accomplish in, in changing a culture. And I, I, I guess I, you know, I, I, when I think about a successful cultural change, I mean, you've seen these big organizations. There was in, uh, in you know, IBM in the 1990s with, uh, with Lou Gerstner. And um, of course they, you know, they've, they've had some subsequent challenges recently, but, you know, I think about Microsoft since Satya Nadella has taken over as CEO, and I, and you know, whether it's fair or not, I mean, he certainly is getting a lot of credit for um, some some very positive results there, and and I, you do hear the 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 perception that a leader can have a big impact on, you know, on a on an organization's culture. You know, where do you think the uh, you know what what's a fair way to think about how to how to allocate either responsibility or the blame, you know. For for leaders and and how should uh, a leader, somebody who's taking over a a business or or a division, uh, you know, effectively um, think about their own limitations in terms of uh, of trying to change a culture uh, and and what their limitations may be. Yeah. Um, so, you know, first off, uh, let me let me say something heretical for you know. A practitioner, our firm, you know, does a lot of leadership development work, and we are very steeped in the in the leadership development literature, and and very, you know, believe highly in leadership. <laughs> um, so let me let me just sort of with that caveat, let me just say, you know, leadership is overrated uh, in in the culture business. Um, I have utmost respect for Satya Nadella. Uh, I had a pleasure of meeting him. He's he's a highly skilled executive. He was a fantastic choice for Microsoft. Um, and for all, by all accounts, the Microsoft culture is shifting. I, you know, I'm, I'm not there anymore. So, I, you know, the scientist in me is always a little skeptical of those claims. But, um, you know, clearly what Satya has been doing, from what I understand from my, my, my contacts there and what I've read, is that um, he has done the, the thing that leaders need to do when they think about culture change, especially moving a large monolith like, you know, 100,000 employees like Microsoft, is is what the, the focus the, the leadership focus is on how do you um, set a different agenda how do you allocate resources differently how do you make a shift in emphasizing different priorities and then on top of that how do you um, ensure that your practices are aligned to support um, those 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 uh, 
those outcomes that you've articulated. In other words, uh, a lot of a lot of what leaders do in most organizations is kind of set the vision or establish what the value should be around a, a positive culture change. But they leave the the organization kind of to its own devices to sort of figure out what to do about that. And from a cognitive perspective, again, that is, that is just backwards, right? The, the, if, if the brain sh is shaped by practice, by, by the way you do things and by doing things, that means that the organizations or organizational practices need to be highly aligned and congruent with with um, a desired future state that you've identified. So leaders can do a very important thing, which is allocate resources, set agendas, um, define priorities, uh, obviously set strategy, and then ensure that all of the practices um, in the organization from everything from sort of, you know, the way you go to market to the way you hire to the basis upon which you develop and promote people to your compensation and reward strategy to um, the way you budget, the way you um, sanction risk, uh, all you know, and on. There's there's a basket of about 25 key practices that you can engage in. All of those are aligned to the to the end state that you want, and that's. It sounds kind of conceptually sort of intuitive or maybe easy. Very very hard to do in practice because um, because organizations, especially large ones, have ten you know different departmental. There's different departmental agendas. There's different subcultures all conspire to kind of um, get in the way. And, and this gets much more complicated, of course, when you have uh, acquisition-hungry, uh, large businesses that are constantly bringing, bringing in new teams. I mean, how, how, you know, how do you uh, align the, um, the evaluation of, of, of culture you know, from the standpoint of a, a company that's trying to make uh, acquisitions and make their M&A strategy successful uh, you know, to, to last through the, you know, through the integration? Uh, of a of an acquisition, for instance, I mean, it, uh, are what are, what are some of the dynamics that uh, that that a company needs to be thinking about uh, more broadly than just uh, what the the business fit or, or or the you know the technology or assets that they're acquiring? Yeah, well, you know, you and I both know um, the statistics on M and A failure rates, right? I mean, they're staggering. Um, in in terms, failure is defined as not returning value to the acquirer, right? Um, and yet, you know, we you know we persist in in acquisition and and in merger and acquisition at a at a at a frenzy, right? Um, the 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 big front the new front not the new but the big frontier, of course, in in merger and in acquisition integration um, effectiveness is is all around the the people side the, the soft side of of uh, of of things, um, you know, beyond just the the basic the basic integration. And, uh, you know, one of the keys, as you might suspect, given what I've, we've just been talking about is, is to surface the, you know, the mental models of the, of both, of, of, of all of the parties, all the, all the actors involved, um, surface the tacit sort of knowledge system that through which these groups see the world and how do they uh, make sense of their worlds and how do they understand risk and how do they, how do they formulate opportunity and how do they think about what success looks like or doesn't look like, not just in the acquisition sphere, but in general. Um, what What is good? What does good look like for them? What is, uh, you know, these are tricky questions. Um, there's those social dynamics and, and uh, uh, normative pressures and you know, between the acquirer and the acquired. 
Um, and it's, you know, especially this is why you see organizations uh, like the GE model, as you know, GE's well-known foray into, into technology um, it was to essentially establish an independent business unit. Um, other companies, you know, that we know, uh, clients of ours have taken a very deliberate step to acquire technology companies, but essentially keep them quite separate from the legacy mainline businesses, um, which is a, a, a clever strategy in the short term for preserving the unique cultural perspectives of those organizations. The question becomes, how do you start to realize the value in integrating those new technology businesses with the legacy um, industrial businesses and how, where and how do those synergies start to um, add value. So uh, the, the key to all that in our view is, is, is about bringing leadership teams together, allowing, that, allowing these hard conversations to, to happen, allowing these tacit mental models, these tacit views of the world to come, come out, be surfaced. All of that takes time. All of that takes fairly skillful facilitation. Um, all of that is is potentially conflictual and messy. And companies in their, you know, in the emphasis on speed in, in this day and age really precludes a lot of that that kind of work. So um, it's a another another paradox, Ed. That uh, the, for, in our view, the key to successful integration is all about is all about people and surfacing their collective uh, mental models. Uh, and and making sense of that and, and working those issues in a productive way, which which is all about getting people into a room and having hard conversations right. over time. No doubt. So when you look forward, I mean, how what what uh, given all of the uh, kind of the new insights and 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 practices and and best practices that are that are that are starting to surface. I mean, over the next decade, how, you know, what what how do you see the first of all your field uh, evolving, and uh, can you point to you know an, an organization that's uh, you know that 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 how the successful organization can successfully you know take advantage of 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 some of the insights in you know in in cognitive uh, anthropology and 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 some of the work that you've been doing. Well, you know, if I've sounded a little bit sort of doom and gloomish, um, I actually am inherently quite optimistic. <laughs> um, so I, my intent is, I mean, I do think the, uh, the, the culture industry, and it is an industry, um, is very ripe for disruption. It's, uh, you know, the, the tenets of the industry are really built off of 100-year-old science or pseudoscience, and uh, if it's it built on anything at all. And so if there ever was a, a, an organizational uh, development arena right for change. It's it's the culture field because it's it's uh, a, it's full of uh, it's full of half truths and, and naivete. So having said all that, the next 10, 20, 30 years uh, uh, of uh, of culture practice in business and industry are 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 going to be phenomenally exciting. We're we're on the we're on the verge of of sort of radical new ways of thinking about culture. The trickle down the trickle down effect from the from the you know from neuroscience and cultural neuroscience and linguistics, anthropology, sociology, uh, the cognitive branches of those disciplines is is just beginning, um, and so there's a lot to look forward to. Um, the organizations that can take advantage of some of this emerging science, I think, are going to be uh, find that their cultural change investment is actually going to return something. Uh, most culture change programs fail to return any ROI. Um, but that, ironically or, or paradoxically, is, is going to take 
doing some of the things I've been talking about. It's going to take an emphasis on practices, uh, not an emphasis on pronouncements. Um, move the discussion away from values and talk about outcomes. Uh, focus on deeply seated organizational practices that are um, in getting in the way of, of your desired change. Um, it's going to take uh, leadership teams, you know, uh, having hard conversations and surfacing their mental models and assumptions about how the world works and um, forcing them to look at how they might change some of that. Um, all of that takes time. Uh, so, you know, part of the uh, part of the answer to your question is successful culture change also requires a long term commitment. There's a you know many, many culture change programs are sort of emphasizing on you know, change everything in six months and speed and doing things quickly. And um, the neuroscience, the, the cognitive science would argue very much against that. Um, you can't really change the way the brain is wired uh, in a one-shot deal. It's a it's a sustained effort. Again, mm -hmm. think about, you know, the musician and, the, and practicing how long it takes to wow. develop sensory. Right? So the brain, the brain does change. Neuroplastic, you know, neural pathways do change, but they change over time with sustained new experience, sustained new exposure. Right. So, so things take time. Uh, yeah. Culture is a five year, it's a, it's a five year effort at least at a minimum. And that's if you're doing everything right. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's, that's super helpful to, uh, to, to, to keep into perspective. So, so my final question is uh, about a recommendation. I always love to ask uh, if you can, if you've got a good book or other resource recommendation for our listeners. Well, uh, I, I will say, you know, sort of there's I know of no um, I'll, I'll put my own book out of this, but I know of no popular book on organizational culture. That's mm. that's that's worth your time. I, I would I would I hate to say that. But and, and the book I wrote is really an academic book for um, for uh, academics. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.